You're listening to Booth One. Hey, Gary Zabinski with you on another edition of Booth One. And like the keys on a piano, this is episode number 88. 88. My partner, Frank Taranjo, is attending the opening of a new performance space at his high school alma mater in Oak Lawn. So I'm reluctantly flying solo today, but I will not be lonely. As my guest in the booth this week is the charming and sophisticated Miss Nina Ivan. Welcome to the booth, Nina. Thank you for having me, Gary. I'm going to explain a little bit to our listeners about you, and please correct me when I go astray, all right? Okay, absolutely. First of all, your name is Nina, N-E-N-A, and your last name is I-V-O-N, pronounced Ivan. Correct. I I wanted to say Ivan. I've been saying that in my head all week, but it's Ivan. Well, it's short for Ivanovich, so it would have been... Ivanovich, of course. Well, that makes perfect sense. Of course. Ninochka Ivanovich. Ninochka Ivanovich. Yes. Sounds like something out of a Russian play. Don't you think? You should be a character, for sure. I am a character. Well, a native Chicagoan and a character, Nina retired from Saks Fifth Avenue, Chicago after, am I right about this, 53 years? And a half, yes. (laughs) Where she was the longest tenured employee at that point, anyway. She began her career at Saks while still in high school. Now, you went to school here in... Evanston, locally, right? Your first assignment was as a sales associate in the contemporary sportswear department, formerly called the debutante sportswear. Don't you love that? Did you have many debutantes come in? Were you actually? uh, Yeah, (laughs) yes, we did. Were there coming out parties at that point in your career where debutantes would debut in the spring? Oh, absolutely. No, it was the course. It still is the big passive and cotillion, and well, there were two big ones, and then they all had their individual. Uh, debuts as well at a lot of the private clubs or homes or country clubs and so on. Yeah, it was a, it was a big deal. We And then we'd have teeths for them that I'd show them what to wear and it, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Very, after, very glam. Very early in your career there, a year or so after you started, you were promoted to assistant fashion director. Assistant fashion director, yes. Tell me what the assistant fashion director at Saks Fifth Avenue did. Did everything the fashion director did. Uh, and... <laughs> And the first day I walked in, this is a good story, the first day I walked in, and she said, uh, I'm going to a luncheon, and we have ladies coming in for their fitting, and I'll see you later. That was my first day. (laughs) So I said, fine, see you later. And I talked with her over the year and said, if there's ever an opening, I'd be interested. So I thought, okay, fit. In my mind, you know, I should have pins on my wrist and, and be ready to hem the skirts. And you know, fitting to me was alterations. So in came the ladies, and uh, we were doing a fashion show with them at an old key club. I don't know if I, some of your listeners may remember the, uh, the key club. And in they came, and I was, you know, like sweating blood that I should get them in clothes they wanted to wear. Well, that's not what you do when you're putting non-professionals in a show. Uh, you're styling what we call styling now. You, sure. You'd be personal styling them. So it took me about two women into this that I all of a sudden thought, I can't, this will be nuts because we're going to try on every piece in our stock. So I would look at them and say, okay, this is what they should wear. And that's what I did. So from that day forward, I, I did whatever I had to do and learned it. 
and it was it was a good learning experience. And she was a great boss. She really was. Well, you held the position of special events, publicity, and fashion director for 50 years, and as such produced all the fashion shows and special events for Saks Fifth Avenue, Michigan Avenue, and producing shows in other Saks Fifth Avenue markets. And for many years, I didn't know this, you styled the store's windows and interior mannequins. Is I that did. right? Yeah. Wow. Well, it was kind of fun because, of course, we didn't have cell phones or we had uh, beepers. Uh, and we also had bells that would ring. Certain amount of bells would ring when you were, had a phone call or needed somewhere. Uh, in the windows, I couldn't hear them. So it was kind of fun to do that. Uh, <laughs> and it was, it was one day a week that I would be in the, in the windows helping do that. And then I would help dress some of the mannequins on the floor as well. So it was, it's the same thing as, as dressing people or doing a fashion show. You're just doing on a non-animate object, and they don't like to bend for you. Right. You know, the fingers... And they don't complain too much. Well, they don't complain at all, actually, unless, no. you know, something falls off. But it, <laughs> it, was, it was fun. It was, and it was, uh, it was the same thing. It was just in a different situation. That's all. It sure. still presenting. You're still selling merchandise. You also, in your capacity as the uh, director of uh, special events and publicity and fashion... You worked with over 150 of the leading fashion designers and style icons of the 20th and 21st centuries and produced thousands of fashion shows and special events for many of the city's charitable and civic organizations. You're also an avid sports fan, from what I understand. That is true. Go Bears. Absolutely. You're a hometown girl, right? I am. You're a hometown Chicago girl. I am. So you started at Saks when you were in high school. Were you interested in a career in fashion? And is that why you went to Saks? Or is this just sort of an opportunity that came about? No, and I didn't have some epiphany when I was 7 or 10 or whatever. I always knew I wanted to be in fashion. My father was an artist. Uh, I had My mom was a great interior uh, person and, and stylish dresser, etc. Mm. So I'd been around uh, arts all my life. And I always knew I wanted to do something in fashion. I, but I didn't know if I wanted to be a model at the time. I could have been, uh, size-wise, can't now. I didn't know if I wanted to do that. I didn't know if I wanted to be a dress designer. I didn't know what I wanted to do. But some little nugget in my brain said, it all boils down to selling merchandise. It all boils down to retail. The final product is going to be in a store or now online uh, or wherever. But it's going, you're going to have to present this to the public somehow. So how does that happen? So I got on my hat and gloves, literally, got on the bus, and my first, the first stop on the bus route was Saks. So in I went, went into what was called personnel, which is human resources mm -hmm. now. The, the personnel director said, can you start tomorrow? And I said, start what? And she said, working. And I said, well, I'm in school. And she said, well, what about next week? I said, well, that would be okay. So I worked on Saturdays until I graduated, and then um, I worked full time. I have a dark secret to tell you about myself. Oh, dear. I have, <laughs> I have never missed a single episode of Project Runway. My goodness. Not a single one. I'm obsessed with the show. I'm a huge fan, and it's, it's, it's fun. fueled my love of fashion but and But you design. understand this isn't reality at all. You this do understand not, that, don't exactly, you? <laughs> I do understand it. Are you a fan of the program? I, I haven't watched it recently. I'm so sorry. I'll have to catch up with you. But I knew the minute that Christian Siriano went on stage, Mr. Fierce, uh, that he was going places, and he certainly has. My producer and I are currently watching that season over again, season four, I think it was. And he is one of the nicest, most talented young men and a smart guy and just knows what 
the industry is about. And, you know, to do $10,000 dresses with Payless shoes, this is how women dress or vice versa. You're going to buy Louboutins and you're going to be an H&M. So he, he has his pulse and he also dresses all sizes, which I absolutely mm. admire him for. He's, mm. he's brilliant. Austin Scarlett's another of my favorites. I adore Austin. Austin Scarlett, yes. Adore Austin. It's a fun program. It's going to be interesting to see now that uh, our two main stars are, have left it of who will, who will be their replacement. Of the judges that have come and gone, of course, Nina Garcia has always been the stalwart. She's always been there when she was with Elle, and now well, she's, she's the with professional. Marie Claire. Absolutely. And I have a huge crush on her. It always have. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. great to watch season four again because she's so much younger. Weren't we all? <laughs> and boy, I wish I could go back and watch season four of my life. Wouldn't that be fantastic? Well, sometimes it might be and sometimes not. <laughs> For the past several years now, you've devoted yourself to your blog called Nina's Notes. Yes. It's Nina's Notes. It's all one word, Correct. right? And all small letters. And all small letters. Tell us about that and what prompted you to start on this adventure and this journey? Good question. I think in my mind, number one, I never thought I could write. That was, that was not something. I can talk a lot. But I never thought I could write and I really didn't need to. And I really want to do a book because I, I think I have some interesting stories I could tell. I, I would imagine so after 53 years in and, that industry. Uh, you know, and most of the people I've talked about are dead, so I can say whatever I want. But it was, it was just sort of an adventure into, only kidding, uh, kind of. It was an adventure in my mind to see, number one, if I could write. Number two, that everyone only thinks I can talk about fashion. And I have so many other interests, so I thought, well, I don't want this just to be about fashion. There's enough of those. I'm not going to do selfies, and I'm not going to show you how to put makeup on when you're 104. I'm not going to do that. So each day is, I blog five days a week. Don't ask me why, because that's quite nuts. But each day is different. But that was pretty much the idea. And when I, and I was planning it for like two or three or four years, and finally I said, either fish or cut bait, Nina. You know? sure. So finally I started it. Because everyone's saying, aren't you going to do your black? Aren't you going to do your black? And I said, yes. <laughs> so I started it, and I've had people say to me, it's like you're sitting here talking to us. Well, I don't think there could be a better compliment. It's been a lot of fun, and it's also gotten me to meet different people. I do a lot of book reviews now, which I love. And a lot of the authors have given me some of their new books to do as advanced things. So I, I'm having a lot of fun with it. But it was really kind of the precursor to the book. You want to know what I tentatively title, want to title the book? Well, of course. Are you ready now? Braced? Standing by. Okay, here we go. A hell of a long summer job. <laughs> Don't That's you think? excellent. Don't you think? That's excellent. It has to be a black cover, of course, with maybe some pearls thrown in there somewhere. But I, I, that's my working title. That's fantastic. So it's Nina's Notes, yes. all small letters, N-E-N-A-N-O-T-E-S. If you want to go There's to... There's an S in there, N-E-N-A-S. Ah, Nina's Notes, Correct. of course it is. Yes. N-E-N-A-S-N-O-T-E-S. If you want to go to Google and type that in and it'll come and up. And it pops right up. It does indeed. It's kind of scary. So you blog about five days a week. Yes. And every day is something different. Yes. Do you have a particular topic for each day? Yes. Is Monday something, Correct. Tuesday? Tell us about what those are. Uh, Monday is always a profile. And I started that with, I wanted to do some of my model girls 
original models that I had and what they're doing now. My goodness. Yes, which has been kind of interesting. And then I wanted to take that further. So then I started doing other people I know and personalities. So then I do a questionnaire. And it's kind of open forum that they can say whatever they want. So that's become my day one. My day two is always books. A book review, it could be... There's nothing negative in here. I don't believe in negativity. I don't believe in gossip. It's just positive. If I don't like the book, I'm not going to review it. And if I don't like it right away, I don't read it. Mm. Wednesday, I call musings, so it can be whatever I want it to be. It could be on posters. It could be on a microphone. It could be on anything. Thursday is collections, and that, again, can be basically anything. And Friday is what everyone thinks it's going to be is fashion. And that can be on the designers I've worked with. It can be on the current season, the four major markets, or it's just a color that interests me. And then I have two days of rest when I usually write all this. And I'm, I'm having fun with it. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, really I'm am. having fun following it. Thank you. I think one of your collections, either this month or last month, was on doorknobs. Yes, it was. Do you collect doorknobs? No, I don't. Uh, but you know people who do. Yes, I do. And it's it's a fascinating subject. They are wacky. They are decorative and they are artsy and Indeed. they have yeah. functionality yet style and there's as many different kinds of doorknobs as there are people on the planet absolutely I think. true and you can just have a basket of doorknobs and, and they're beautiful objects of the hundreds of designers that you have worked with can you give me you, you want me to tell me who my favorites are? i want to i want you to give me three or four oh, of, of your favorites oh, dear i know uh, it's very tough it is hard uh, obviously those that i i probably was closest to i certainly can mention but you know the ones that i think are the most talented it'd be easier to say who wasn't but i'm not going to do that on air <laughs> privately we can discuss that I would certainly have Adolfo, who did exclusive line for us and, and became, uh, has become a very, very good friend. Bill Blass, Pauline Trigere, Bob Mackey, I'm absolutely mad for Bob. I think he is one of the most creative. I don't know too many designers that I work with that know a body as well as Bob does. If you don't have one, he gives it to you. If you do, he enhances it. And I think most everyone thinks of him as a costumer when we're thinking Carol Burnett or Cher or whatever, and he indeed is, but he does exquisite clothes. And I just had my picture taken with Bob Mackey in the lobby of the Cher show when it opened here yeah. in Chicago. Yeah. There he was, just standing by himself, smiling, beaming. Some people were recognizing him. Most people indeed. were not. Indeed. And I said, I that's Bob Mackey. And he could not have been more generous and, and, and kind. Lovely. I said, w- would you mind taking a photograph? He said, of course yes, not. Of course. That would be wonderful. Yeah. And the clothes in that show spectacular. were spectacular. Spectacular. <laughs> yes. Spectacular. Really something. Christian Lacroix, I adore. Hmm. And I'm sure if you are watching Project Runway, you're watching AbFab as well. So, you know, you're hearing Lacroix, sweetie, a lot. And he is, uh, to me, one of the most creative. But if we're going to go back to my very beginnings, we're going to think of Norman Norell, genius Norman Norell, Bonnie Cashin. And back in the day, I could meet the designer at the gate at the airport, escort them to the car, be with them in the car, do it in reverse. So you have an hour, you have captive in an hour in a car to talk to these people and make them feel that Chicago was where they should come. And they did. And it was long before we had texting or cell phones or anything else. It was talking to someone in their face and getting to know them. 
Often I'd be included in the dinners, and I'd be on the selling floor with them for the entire time they were there, and some of them were there for a week at a time. Are, are you going to be chums with them? No. Some I was, but most of the time you're just going to be, Nina's going to be with us, and it was kind of like a comfort. It was like their comfort blanket. Mm, how exciting, though, yeah. for you. Yeah, it was. As, as a young woman to be around these fashion yeah. icons yeah. and to spend time watching them work, watching them craft. Indeed. And uh, watching them put on a show, I You're going to make me cry. Oh. <laughs> and I knew it at the time. I, you know, I think that's often what happens when, when you're in a situation, you're, you're not aware of what the situation is. And you also can't just kind of walk around looking like that you're impressed with them all the time either, because that doesn't go over well. Mm. And it, you're going to be treated in a different manner. But I grew up with that pretty much, too. And my father was very involved in, in the art scene in Chicago. And in, he was friends with the Marienthal's, so we were always at Mr. Kelly's and, and London House. And it was just normal. I think what we forget about celebrity, whether it's in our industry or in, in any of the arts, they're people. And they want you to talk to them like they're people. They don't want you to just kind of be standing saying, in awe of them. I think most people want to be acknowledged. They want to be talked to in a normal manner. And what I'm finding now, I have made, because now I'm doing a book club, I have made most of my contacts with the authors uh, on Instagram. I will just private messenger them and say, I'm doing this. I'm interested in talking with you. Uh, are you interested? And they'll say yes or no. It's the same thing of meeting them at the gate at the airport. Now I'm meeting them at the gate of Instagram or yeah. Facebook or whatever it is. So technology changes and things change, but it's still, I still want that one-on-one -on -one with people. I really do. I think that's important. You know, our show, Booth One, is named after the famous Booth One in the old pump room at the Ambassador East Hotel. You were talking about something before we got on the air today. You used to do what, an interview program at the pump room? And you used to talk to people who would come in at booth one yeah. uh, or sit in booth one. Uh, was this a lunchtime thing? Was it, was, this a it was lunchtime, yeah. We did two fashion shows a week. Stanley Paul played our piano for us. We started on Tuesdays, and Rich Melman at the time owned it, which he does again, and said, this is so successful, we need to do a second day. So we did Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the PR director there was very well known in Chicago, Lucia Perigo. And Lucia would do interviews. And when she wasn't there, then little Nina would do that. <laughs> and there was like a, a little tiny stage in the middle of the pump room. And we'd get our high chairs and sit up there with a mic in hand. I would have sat with whoever the guest was. And usually it was someone, uh, it was, they were still changing trains uh, in those days. But it Sure, would, they'd stop and they'd get yeah, to the pump room and have, century, have yeah. lunch and Absolutely. then get on a train to Absolutely. California or, or something. Overnight. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or stay overnight. Absolutely. Sure. Or they're performing here. Because mm -hmm. we always had either pre-Broadway, which we're getting a lot again, thank God, or the original casts. So we would have them. In the national tours, yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We didn't have, you know, the 9,000th version of... Chicky Poo Schwartz's musical, it would be the cast. And, and I love that musical, by the way. Wasn't Chicky it wonderful? Yeah, fantastic Yeah, show. I liked it too. We, but we were the only two that saw it, I think. <laughs> uh, that's why it doesn't play too often. So we would have all these wonderful people. So if she wasn't there, I got to do this as well. And we'd sit over lunch and chat, as you and I are doing now. And then we'd get up and they would just look at me like, 
what am I supposed to do or say? And you're talking as fast as you can. So you had to do your homework a little bit, know who they were. Yeah. And try to engage them again like it's only you talking to them. This, to me, is the most important part of being an interviewer, is you're talking only to that person. There are 2,000 people in the the auditorium, but talk to me. Mm -hmm. Talk to me. And I, I think that becomes a much more intime and much more interesting result when you do that. Name drop for me a little bit. Can you tell me a couple of people that uh, you were impressed with? Well, people like Ethel Merman. It would have been sports figures. It would have been movie stars. A lot of authors we would have. And then a lot of local personalities who are promoting something. Because, you know, we had a lot, as you well know, we had a lot of Chicago celebs like the Stud Sturkles of the world and you know, they were all there as well. So it, it's hard to remember, but it's a very long time ago. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of film stars, I need to report on this as part of our popular culture update. The Library of Congress opens a screening room, Cinephiles Rejoice. The Library of Congress has unveiled its new national screening room a free collection of digitized historical films, commercials, newsreels, and other clips. Uh, The National Screening Room is something of a time capsule. The videos cover the period from, (laughs) this is crazy, from 1890 through 1999. Very curious to see what they have from the 1890s or the turn of the century. Capturing a broad range of American life, notable films include home movies by the songwriters George and Ira Gershwin, Oh, my God. Issues of the All-American News, which was a newsreel intended for black audiences in the mid-20th century, and a selection of instructional films about mental health from the 1950s. I absolutely need to get to the Library of Congress and see those because the films in the in the 2010s are not helping me with my mental health. (laughs) No, the 50s would have been much more informative. New Yorkers might get a kick out of a short, silent film shot in 1905 that shows a new subway chugging along from 14th Street to 42nd Street months after the underground line had opened. And from what I've read, they're still using those subway cars from 1905. I I can believe it. 1905. 1905. Chugging along underground. I imagine they were steam-powered at that point or coal-powered, something like that. I don't know. And before the Stonewall riots shook Manhattan, protesters in Philadelphia were filmed during Reminder Day Picket, one of the earliest gay pride demonstrations. Now, the Library of Congress says it has the largest archive of moving images in the world, amounting to more than 1.6 million materials. Nearly 300 videos are online, and new content will be added to the website on a monthly basis. This is their new screening room called the National Screening Room, where you can see these short films documentaries, newsreels. 300 pieces of their collection is viewable online, and well, they're going to be adding more every week. Well, let's hope that the mental illness one from 50s is online, because that would, we would want to see. I, I'm definitely going yes. to that as soon as we're done here. Definitely. One of the segments on your blog that you mentioned earlier is oriented around people sort of reinventing themselves. Yes. In fact, you mentioned that you talked to your former models, yes. models that you worked with back at Saks for years. Why do you find reinventing oneself so fascinating? Is this something that you've tried to do in your life a little bit, or is it just something that you found interest in and you wondered what people were doing with a career that, well, let's face it, fashion modeling is not a career that lasts very long? No, it isn't. That's a good question. I 
Yes, I, you know, I, I'm always going to be able to do something. Now, whether I'm doing it as a volunteer or I'm doing it for money, gee, what a concept, or I'm doing it uh, for my own self-edification, I've never not done something, so I'm going to do something. We're in an extraordinarily exciting city, and there's so much to do and, and so many opportunities. But I think that's when people get this whole age thing that uh, you're going to die tomorrow unless you're doing what you've always done. Well, you're not going to do what you've always done. Let's think of just people in sports. They can't do things after a certain point in time because their bodies won't let them do it. I think it's true of all of us. We have to keep going as much as we can. And if, if that's in the same, I, you know what I just said, that everything's the only thing in the world I can talk about is fashion. Well, yes, I can. But I have so many other interests that why not explore those as well? So I, that was kind of what I found. And I found that with my models in particular, they've all, 90% of the ones that I began with have gone on to totally different careers. Most of them are married and have children and grandchildren. But they have either become interior decorators or they have become sculptors or they have become public personalities. I mean, they, they're out all, or, or actors. Uh, all kinds of different levels, and I think that is, that's healthy. I think one of the things that, with men in particular, the minute they retire, they die. They don't have any hobbies. Mm. They don't have any, I'm being very general. Of course, there are those that do. But so many that that's all they can concentrate on is their business. And once that's gone, I guess they don't feel like they have anything. And my father had so many interests. He died young, so we don't know. But he had so many interests that he could have pursued any one of them and been happy with it. However, his family was most important to him. So that was, that was number one on his agenda. In my instance, it was, it's writing now. And it's, I obviously can talk. That's still not an issue. Uh, <laughs> but I still work with people in dressing them. I, I could probably do that as a career. I don't want to do that anymore. I was good at selling. I couldn't possibly stand on the selling floor and do that eight hours a day anymore. Couldn't physically do that. Mm. I still produce fashion shows. There aren't that many around. I still do lecturing, and I teach. Tell me about your teaching. Where do you teach, and what do you teach? I, at the moment, I teach at Columbia College, Chicago, and I have taught there for, I didn't realize how long I'd been there. I guess I never stay anywhere a year. I've been there 32 years. <laughs> um, and you know, You're an overachiever. Yeah, I mean, if I'm there, I might as well. And what I love, this is my favorite, though. Really, Gary, this is my absolute favorite question. When I was retiring, well, did you like what you did? No, I was here for 50 years and hated it. Now, I mean, duh. But the only thing I could do other than be at Saks Fifth Avenue was to teach, because it wasn't a conflict of interest. So I taught at the Art Institute of Chicago. I taught at Harper. I taught all the fashion schools in, in Chicago and ended at Columbia. I'm in fashion studies there. I've taught several classes at the moment. I'm teaching fashion show production. Fashion show production. Mm -hmm. Are they going to produce fashion shows? Probably never. But what they're going to learn is how to work in teams. They're going to learn organization. They're going to learn time management. Unless they're going to be hermits, they're going to have to work with people. They're going to learn a lot of different things that will, I hope, help them. Research. Not, a, not unlike some of the lessons these contestants on Project yep. Runway learn. Yep. They make it clear that you can't do it alone. this is not nope. a, a business where you nope. sit by yourself nope. in your house and you nope. sew some clothes and then you uh -uh. sell them. Uh -uh. Uh, there's uh -uh. a lot of people involved, right? That's a very good point, Gary, that I'm glad you touched upon. Everyone thinks fashion is frivolous. Everyone thinks that this is just a, a very frivolous thing to do. Well, let's just think about it for a second. 
it employs millions of people around the world, millions on all levels. It's not just selling. It's not just modeling. It's not just designing clothes. It is so many other layers and pumps billions of dollars into the uh, economy. So this is not fluff. This is serious big-time stuff. And serious part of it is if you're in the business end of it, if you're in the technology end of it, if you are in the creative end of it, all those people have to come together to form garments. We all have clothing on, so that's got to come from somewhere. Learning the skills of, well, we should learn that in life, period, all to get all get along. That would be a concept. Mm. is very important in our industry. And in school, when you have uh, one side is the business part of it and the other side is the creative part of it, this is when you're going to make friends and make your business and be entrepreneurial because it's all going to be entrepreneurial. And that's what they have to learn. And hopefully that's what I'm teaching them. You're a huge fan of the performing arts as well. Yes. Uh, as we touched upon earlier, uh, ballet, theater, opera, symphony, uh, you attend them. A- have you attended something recently that moved you, that touched you, that you found to be just, well, magnificent? Yes. <laughs> Hopefully, like I'm like one of the people I was interviewing, and say yes. Would you like to expand upon that answer? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or should I have said no? I feel like I'm interviewing Frank Sinatra. <laughs> oh, if he should only be here, oh please, you're going. Oh. Yes, the new production of Swan Lake by Joffrey, Christopher Wheeldon. Oh my God, it is one of the most beautiful productions of anything I've ever seen, and I have seen dozens of Swan Lakes in my day. And I wrote um, a blog post on it, and I said that of all the Swan Lakes I've seen, that I had to make this second. It had to come behind Fontaine and Nureyev. It had to. I couldn't put it number one. Having seen it again yesterday, it may have to rise to the top. It is the core alone. I mean, the principles are, are extraordinary, but the core was so in sync and so exquisite. I don't cry easily. I had tears. It was breathtakingly beautiful. And, of course, in that setting, the auditorium is... is, The auditorium theater here in Chicago. Yeah, what a magnificent, magnificent building. And in two years, they'll be at at Lyric. So, I mean, they're going from one exquisite place to another. Right. But if I had to scale on what is my favorite art, it would be musicals. That musical would, theater. That would be my number one, yes. I assume you're a Sondheim fan. I am. Right? And Weber. A- and Andrew Lloyd Weber. Yes. You know, I worked on The Phantom of the Opera for many, many years uh, on the national tour. No, I'm going to cry. Yeah. That is my favorite. I, that I is may my have, favorite. I may have been witness to approximately, by my calculations, 1,600 performances of that show. <laughs> I'm almost there with you. I'd seen it originally in, in London, and then I saw it in New York with Crawford. I was there for two weeks during a market, and one of everyone wanted to take me to see Phantom, and I didn't want to say I just saw it last night, but, you know, thank you. I could have lived there. And uh, Crawford alone with the hands, I mean, I swear to God. It, it, I'll never forget it. Very unique. My first Broadway show on Broadway, because we had Broadway shows here all the time, as we discussed, was My Fair Lady with uh, Harrison and Andrews. Uh-huh. And... And theater to me, live theater, you you just yeah. can't beat live theater. I like I like legit too, but I do like musicals best. My Fair Lady may be my favorite oh. musical. 
I think it's it is, the it perfect is. show. Well, it's kind of like me saying uh, Fontaine and, and Nuria. My Fair Lady and Phantom would probably be equal in my mind. I wanted to mention this for our listeners as well. We've we've talked about this show on Broadway uh, a couple of times on our past episodes, The Waverly Gallery, which is the Kenneth Lonergan play. Uh, it's not a brand new play. It was done off Broadway a number of years ago, but it finally opened uh, on Broadway with Elaine May, Lucas Hedges, Michael Cera, and our friend David Cromer. Phenomenally well-reviewed, and Elaine May is getting some serious, serious positive press. She's wonderful. She's probably going to be nominated for this play based on the things that That's I've great. read. And uh, she may very well win uh, herself a Tony Award. What a career she's had. Well, I go back to Nichols and May at Second City. So it's... Yeah? Uh, Did you see them together? Oh, sure. A number of times? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Mm. And I and t- Now, that was improv. I mean, that was total and complete improv. Hysterical. I mean, absolutely hysterical. They were so good together. And she's a brilliant actress. Yeah. Brilliant actress. That's wonderful. And, you know, and she's certainly of a certain age, so good for her. What are you reading these days? Oh, boy. Do you, like me, do you read a number of things at the same no, time? No, I don't. You I just don't. go with what you... I, I do. I, I kind of, Since I review so much of it now, Yeah. I love historical fiction. That's probably my favorite. Really? I'm not doing an awful lot of biographies on, on the blog so far, unless it's a fashion, because now that I do the Fashion Book Club, I, I'm doing those. I, I do love historical fiction best, and I like it when it's about real people, but it's fictionalized. So I, I like that. I like those a lot. Uh, I love mysteries. I really love mysteries. Like murder mysteries, detective well, mysteries? Uh, well, but kind of both. Yeah. I don't like thriller things, and I don't like scary I'm not fond of scary. They scare me. So serial killers? No, no, no I no. don't know. Okay. All right. No, I don't want Halloween. No. All right. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm more Louise Penny. I'm, I'm more uh, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Charles Todd, uh, Charles Finch. I love Charles Finch. I think he's a brilliant writer. But I, and then I'll do a cozy once in a while. As I said, I, there's too much to read that if you start it, I know right away. And I'm not, at this point in my life, I don't read it all the way through if I don't like it. I just stop. And that's it. And I have a library literally a block away from me. So I am very happy. You mentioned earlier that you use this kind of technique in your profiles where you present your, well, profile E, I guess, with a Proust-like questionnaire yes. in order to open them up and to give us some idea of who they are, what they do. Let's flip the tables a little bit and play with you. Okay. Favorite recipe? My favorite recipe, uh, probably... You the, strike me as a, as a decent cook. I am a decent cook. <laughs> and I like to cook. A mo- modest and decent, I yes. would say. Yeah. Well, modesty is, I think, when you're insecure. I've never been insecure, so there you go. Modest and talking about what I look like might be a different issue, but <laughs> what I do is a different thing. No, I'd like to cook, and I love to entertain. Absolutely adore entertaining. I'm going to start doing a salon on Sunday afternoons. What I've, I have a lot of success with is a, is a lobster pot pie that I like to do a lot. I like to. Mm. Do, I think anyone can cook if they can read a recipe. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do a killer meatloaf. Everyone always wants my meatloaf. I do a, a pretty good borscht. I do my daddy's borscht. But I don't think it's hard to cook. I really don't, and I really enjoy it. A lot. That lobster pot pie has my 
taste buds water. Well, there you go then. Well, I'll know what to have when you wow. all come to dinner, wow. right? It's a good one. Well, like cooking, do you think that anyone can develop a sense of style or are there people who are just hopeless? <laughs> <laughs> That's, that's kind of a little tag there, isn't it? It's, it's, I think they're all hopeless. It's a broad I think they all just need to call me and yeah, I'll help you them. Know, someone walks into Saks and says, I, I just need a new wardrobe. I don't know what to wear. I don't know what fits me. I don't know what looks good on me. How do you help them develop a sense of, of their own personal style? Well, I think, it, and, and when you're saying walk into Saks, I can have you walk in anywhere. I mean, I can take the Salvation Army and have you look good when we come out. It doesn't matter. And I think redoing someone, I am going to look at them and see them how I'm going to see them, whether they're seeing that or not. They might not like it, but they're going to have a different feeling when they're changed. And why come and ask for help if you don't want it to begin with? So I think, first of all, you have to talk to them and say, what's your lifestyle? Are you, what do you do for work? Are you, there's so many levels to this, how you're going to dress. And there are. And then go from there. I don't think age has anything to do with how you dress. I mean, that to me is just the biggest cop-out on the face of the earth. It's like, oh, I can't wear I'm, I'm now 50, and I can... Oh, when did someone get old at 50? You know, this is insanity. And I can't wear that. I can't do that. Why? Why can't you? Now, it's probably inappropriate for you to have worn your skirts 10 inches above your knee to begin with because you had bad legs. Uh, you shouldn't have been wearing it. They're not going to change as you get older. And you shouldn't have been wearing it to begin with. Now, I'm not saying you should wear your skirts 10 inches above your knees when you're over a certain age, because it's really not correct. But there are other things you can modify for that. So you drop them down. So you still can wear it above. My mom was uh, in her 80s when she passed away, and she was wearing skirts above her knees because she had, number one, fabulous legs. And it was normal for her. And she carried it off. She wasn't walking around acting like, look, I'm old and I have my skirt short. It wouldn't have entered her mind. It was a non-entity to her. Mm. So I think the first thing, if you're going into someone and saying, I want you to help me dress, it's not a matter of money. It's not a question of age. It's a question of how secure are you and you, and how can I help you if you're not get to that. Everyone teases the hell on me because I'm 99% of the time I'm in black. I mean, number one, it's easier for me. And when you are presenting clothing, to present that against color or pattern, you're not going to sell the garment. You need that basic color behind. So it's just easier for me. I'm comfortable in it. I don't have to worry about it. I can wear a color jacket. I can do accessories. I can do jewelry. And I think people are afraid of that. I think having a, a signature that you're comfortable in and comfortable in your mind is what's important. So how can we get a comfort level? And then to answer your question, we can get you into a style level probably can make you fashionable. I don't know that we can give you taste or style. I, do, I think that's inbred. I think it's something you have. Develop it? Maybe. Maybe. But to give you a fashion sense, yes. That we can give you. Hmm. That we can give you. Absolutely. But you have to be you and not follow trend. I think that's another suggestion I would make. Very well said. Another inquiry that you present to your interviewees as part of this questionnaire. What would have been an alternate choice of a career for you if it hadn't been in fashion? Have you thought about the answer to this question? Because you've asked it of a number of people. When I was younger, I would have liked to have been an anthropologist. 
But it, as I think of it now, I would have been in show business. I would have been in theater. I would have been in theater. Now, I don't know if that would have been on stage because I'm not good with script. I probably would have been a producer or a director in theater or a dresser. I would have been very happy just being a dresser. <laughs> I wouldn't mind being a dresser Professional right now. Professional dressers are, or, good ones are very rare. Tell me about it. And I also have my best dresser at fashion shows. Everyone always tells me that. Uh, or I'd be an usher, so I could just be at all the performances. Really? Yeah. I think maybe that will be my next career. Did you perform when you were in high school no. or grammar school no. or anything like that? You just no. you, If you someone just had told me that? I would be up in front of thousands of people, I would have thought they were stark raving mad. Getting up in front of my class was painful. So if anyone had said that to me, I would have thought they were lunatics. They, I, we would have had our 1950s mental health film uh, <laughs> because I would have thought they needed to be committed. <laughs> and I never had an issue from the first day I did my first show, ever. And we commentated all the shows for years, years and years and years and years. And it was an hour. You would stand there for an hour. So I guess we can call that show biz if we want to. Sort of, yeah. Uh, and I loved every minute of it. But in, in retrospect, I think I probably would have been Something in the arts. I would have been. I would have been involved somehow. In well, the your arts. first answer was uh, anthropologist. Isn't that bizarre? Tell me what an anthropologist would do. I wanted to be an Egyptologist. I wanted to discover the neck King Tut's tomb. You wanted to go searching like yes, an Indiana Jones. Yes, yes, I did. Find find relics. Yes, and I did. You'd, Egyptians ones in particular. You'd be good at that, don't you think? But I, I would have gone on a dig in a second. Not anymore. <laughs> <sighs> I can imagine you being tenacious, looking for relics, for sure. I understand that you've been thinking about living in a tiny home. And one of the places that you think you I might like to live, live in, well, live even tinier. One, my, of, the, one of the things I think... 700 square feet, so I am already in a tiny home. I think I saw that one of the things that you might take pleasure in is living in a gypsy caravan wagon yes yes tell me about your fascination with that did you did you grow up with in a gypsy caravan caravan? (laughs) were you left on a doorstep somewhere that's that's very funny you should say that because we always would tease mom Uh, mom was from missouri and her father uh, bred trotting horses so they had he was an architect in joplin but he had a farm with trotting horses and the gypsy caravans, literally the ones we're thinking of, the, the English wonderful gypsy, king of the gypsy caravans, wagons would come on his property and he would say to them, you, you're, you can be here. So they appreciated his giving them the land. So mom didn't look like anybody else in the family, so we always said that she had been left by the gypsies. <laughs> so who knows? I may well have gypsy blood. Well, interesting. King, king of gypsy blood, of course. But I'm, I'm mesmerized by all these tiny home programs on HGTV or DIY. And I've also become totally wacko. I should do a blog post on this. I am totally addicted to Texas Flip and Move on the DIY network. Texas Flip and Move. Flip and Move. Yes. What's the premise of that show? Well, these people buy these run-down, rentable shack places in Texas, which I spent all my summers, by the way. And... They take them to this lot, and then they restore them, and they sell them at auction. And I've become totally addicted to this thing. And it is absolutely, it's, well, it's better than watching Hallmark Christmas movies, is all I can tell you, which have already, which have already started. Yeah. 
if you look at it's the same plot. Have all of us noticed it's the same plot? It's just the same plot. It, it, over and over again. Over yeah. and over yeah. in a different setting, but same plot. And we always it always romantically ends with a kiss. Yeah. It's very sweet. But that's not Texas Slip and Move. And Friday nights, you can get a whole marathon on Texas Slip and Move. Wow. Yeah. Uh-huh. You're going to buy one? I don't think so. Okay. No. You're no. too. You're too much of a metropolitan I'm an, I'm Chicago an urbanite. woman. I'm an urbanite. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Maybe I could do a little caravan. Could be a thought. Keep that thought. If you'd like to support Booth One in bringing you the best in lively conversation about the arts and fascinating guests like Nina <laughs> Ivan, you can go to our website at www.booth-one. That's dash o-n-e dot com, and click on the donate button. It's quick. It's easy. It's fully tax deductible under our five hundred one c three status as a nonprofit entity, and any and all contributions would be greatly, greatly appreciated. Nina, we always end our podcasts. If you haven't noticed. I'm sure you've listened to some of them. We always end with a segment called The Kiss of Death. Now, this is a segment that's a celebration. It's like a Hallmark movie. It is very much like a Hallmark movie, except without Cloris Leachman. Oh, God. (laughs) This is a celebration of someone that we've just recently lost. It's someone who has contributed to our culture in some very significant way. Today, we're going to talk just a little briefly about Dorcas Riley. It takes just a few minutes to whip up and contains a mere six ingredients, speaking of cooking. But more than six decades after Dorcas B. Riley invented the classic American dish of green bean casserole when she worked for the Campbell Soup Test Kitchen, it remains a staple of Thanksgiving Day dinners across the country. Mrs. Riley was among the first full-time employees of Campbell's home economics department, where she helped to create recipes printed on the labels of its products. I love a great green bee casserole. Are you a fan of that? I've never had one. You've never had the Campbell's recipe? No, have I had Campbell's soup? Absolutely. Sure. But I've never had a cam I've never had a green bee casserole. Well, speaking Sorry. of anybody being able to cook, this is something that you've got to try once or twice. So when I come over, lobster pot pie and, and green bean casserole would be just it's a, the it's fin- a deal. I yeah. mean there's no question now. My cardiologist will not approve. But I'd love to have it. Her recipe calls for mixing a can of cream of mushroom soup, Campbell's, of course, cooked green beans, a bit of milk, soy sauce, and a little bit of pepper. Pop it in the oven, toss on some crunchy fried onions on top, and voila! The dish epitomizes the easy recipes that became popular in the 1950s when companies promoted them to increase demand for their products. It was convenience with a touch of glamour. As a I want to know what, what the glamour that, part was. That right? the crunchy this, onion rings on top. This was is the from glamour? Laura Shapiro, a culinary historian. She added that the French's crispy onion rings that the recipe called for were a touch of genius. There's always something to accessorize and make something a touch of genius. They do this it's on like, Project it's Runway like a, it's all like the time. It's like a ruffle. It's like a ruffle on top on the bottom of your ball gown. <laughs> That's exactly true. Or a big flower it on your could, shoulder. It could be. I believe that you can also put cheese in. Ooh. And somebody's grandmother is known for putting Velveeta in. Not, th- not that it needs any more stuff that's bad for well, you. I don't know. It that can kinda, stick in I, your that arteries. Might, that might do it. Mrs. Riley was a supervisor in 1955 when she first put together the recipe, originally called the Green Bean Bake. 
It took off when Campbell's began printing the recipe on the cans of soups, especially cream of mushroom soup. It was among hundreds she had created, including a tuna noodle casserole and Sloppy Joe Super Burgers. The company says that more than 20 million American homes will serve this dish this Thanksgiving. Imagine how many cans of cream of mushroom I soup. I do like go. Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, though. Uh, who doesn't? I like Campbell's soup, period. This is not a commercial for Campbell's <laughs> soup, but uh, there, you can't beat their tomato soup. You cannot. I'm going to find their jingle music and put it behind Which, all of this. Because they're <laughs> Campbell's, if you're listening, we could use the sponsorship. Yes, please. Yes, please. Not, and not in soup cans. Yes, please. Dorcas Lillian Bates. Dorcas, D-O-R-C-A-S, very unusual first name, was born in 1926 in Woodbury, New Jersey. Her mother was a homemaker. Her father was an electrician at the Drexel Institute of Technology, and she attended Camden High School, along with Thomas H. Riley, whom she would marry in 1959. In a phone interview, Mr. Riley said that he fell in love with her in the fall of 1940. Quote, but it took a while to get together. I'm like, it took a while? That's that's 19 like, like years. 20 years, it took a while. Well, he served in World War II well, and the Korean War after high well, school while she studied home economics at Drexel. After graduation, she went to work at Campbell's Test Kitchen in Camden. Not unlike very much your career, you going go. to work for a company young in there you her life well, and staying forever. Yeah. yeah, Mr. Riley said his wife had grown up in a family of cooks, which spurred her love of food. Even after spending all day in the test kitchen, she would come home and cook as well, experimenting and using fresh ingredients. She made a lot of soup, Mr. Riley said. You think? (laughs) She left Camels in 1961 to raise her children, but returned years later as a manager, a position she held until she retired in 1988. In 2002, Campbell's donated the original recipe card for the green bean casserole to the National Inventors Hall of Fame. These days, fresh ingredients and complicated recipes are all the rage, and the creamy casseroles of the 50s are decidedly out of fashion and sometimes derided, but because it became so ubiquitous at holidays, the green bean casserole endures, invoking powerful nostalgia for many Americans. Uh, It does for me. I go with a family at Thanksgiving. There are quite a few of us, and I'm going to make one this year. God bless you. In honor of Dorcas. That's going to be fantastic. I shall. If you have the love and memory of this, you will never think it's gross, Miss Shapiro said. That's, again, our culinary historian. You will think of it as the food of your past, and you will cherish it. Dorcas Riley, creator of the classic American green bean casserole, was 92. I have done the, the tuna casserole, of course. I always thought the green bean casserole was done with canned green beans. Maybe that's why I didn't want to have it. So you do it with fresh green beans? As fresh as you can possibly get. And I believe you cook them first. I think you blanch them. Right, right. And then you put them in the casserole Very and good. everything gets bound together. Lo- of course it would. And yeah. particularly if you're going to throw a little Velveeta on it. <laughs> I, think, I think that's what cinched it for me. I'm putting the Velveeta in there. Well, thank you, Nina Ivan, for being our guest today. You are an inspiration and a delight. Best of luck with your blog thank and your you. future endeavors. Thank you. I hope to come to one of your fashion book club sessions. You must. I, I understand that gentlemen are welcome. Indeed, they are. When's uh, the next one and how often do you we, have them? We do our book clubs on this, the fourth Tuesday of every month. And it's at a private club and it's by... Well, you can do it through my through my website. Fantastic. Again, that's Nina's Notes 
Correct. Visit www.booth-one.com for prior episodes and more information about our program. For Booth One and my guest, Nina Ivan, this is Gary Zabinski saying so long and keep listening. Keep listening.